Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Patrick Lilly with the Corcoran Group in New York, New York. Last year, he closed 71 transactions with a total sales volume of $85 million. His average sales price was $1.2 million, of which 39% were buyers and 61% were sellers. He operates a team with nine members, four point people, one rental specialist, one part-time telemarketer, one lead coordinator, one group manager, and one team leader. Patrick Lilly is the team leader of the Patrick Lilly Group. He's been an agent for 29 years. Patrick works Manhattan and Brooklyn. He's increased his business every year for the last seven years, even through the Great Recession. In this call, Patrick talks about coming to terms with a career as a real estate agent, using your mindset to control your reality and win, even when everyone else is losing. How to sell homes in a market with no MLS and no lockboxes. How he double-ins 20 to 50% of his transactions. Deliberately increasing your average sales price. His super successful expired listing program. A part-time telemarketer who brought in an additional 550000 in GCI. How to screen telemarketing applicants without talking to them. Effective telemarketer compensation. His follow-up program for past clients and sphere of influence. Listing process and the power of positioning the property. Team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Patrick. Thank you, Mike. Hey, Patrick, it's great to have you. Before we start talking about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Before I got into real estate, I had moved to New York to do my graduate work in clinical psychology, and I came to the new school. Uh, I lasted about two weeks and decided it's more fun to play than to work, so uh, I dropped out of that. And then when I got serious about working again, I decided to get an MBA. I'd been working in the art field for a little while. And um, so I got my, uh, I went to NYU to get my MBA. I was bartending at the time and uh, to pay for school and, uh, and to pay for life. And uh, I was making a lot of money bartending. I was making back, this would have been back in the early 80s. I was making, you know, $75,000 and most of that was cash. And um, uh, so I went and got my MBA from NYU, and upon graduation, I was offered two jobs, one at 18000 and one at 23000 in advertising, and I was shocked that I was so <laughs> low. I was like, how can I leave my bartending job you know, for such little money? I didn't realize you had to work your way up in advertising. I just thought the beginning structure would be higher. I was very naive about that. 
And uh, after about a year, I still, I continued bartending about a year after I uh, got my MBA and had lunch with a good friend who was a manager in real estate at a local company here. And he said, why don't you come work with us and sell real estate? And I turned up my nose and I said, I have an MBA. I'm not going to sell apartments. And he told me how much he made that first year, and my nose went right back down. <laughs> and three days later, I was uh, working uh, for my friend. Fantastic. Fantastic. And how long have you been in real estate now? 29 years. It'll be 29 years this April. That's awesome. Now, did you have a fast start or a slow start when you got into real estate? Both. I had a fast start. I had a, you know, I was, you know, their top rookie and, um, I did really well at the beginning, um, but I didn't, I never honestly, to be totally honest with you, I always thought real estate was beneath me, that I was too educated and too smart to be selling real estate. And I thought eventually I'd be getting into the commercial side or the consulting, more likely the consulting side. And after you know several years of you know working in residential, I had a resume that the commercial and consulting side really wasn't interested in. And that took about that took about 10, 12 years. And when I finally realized that this is what I was going to be doing for my life, that this is what I'm good at, and to stop looking down on it and to embrace it totally, that's when my career really shot off. Wow. And it took you 10 or 12 years. Why, why do you think it took so long? I'm a slow learner sometimes. <laughs> I held some beliefs that were not serving me. And one of the beliefs that I held was that real estate is, you know, selling residential real estate uh, is for somebody who can't do anything else. And um, I realized later on that there's a real skill to it and a real art and you're providing an incredible service. So there had to be a paradigm shift in my thinking about my job in order to embrace it and really be passionate about it. And that was the shift. Ah, so what did you replace? What did you put in your mind? If someone is experiencing the same challenge, what did you put into your mind to replace that concept? Um, that what I do is actually a really important element in improving other people's lives. That, especially in New York City, the quality of, of your life is often related to your domicile and how happy you are with your neighborhood or your home or how it fits into your finances. And being able to, to help people achieve their goals is a very rewarding aspect when you look at it from that perspective. And, and there also is the shift in my mind about, you know, stop being so hoity-toity, Patrick. You know, let's get serious, and let's, you have a real talent for what you're doing. You know, why don't you give it 100% before you, you, you uh, give up on it? So after 12 years, I started actually giving it 100%. You know, I can remember early on, I can remember thinking, okay, what's the least number of steps I can do to make this transaction to go through? Wrong attitude. <laughs> really wrong, wrong, wrong attitude. And now my thing is, I don't even look at the number of steps required. Now what I look at is, how can... I make this client feel really happy 
with our service so that we help them reach their goals and they want to refer everybody they ever know down the road to us because we did such a great job. And that's a totally different mindset between the least amount of steps I can do to get my check. Absolutely. Very good. So, and, and if the results are paying off, how many transactions did you close last year? We did about, uh, it depends on how you count them, and because we have rentals, which are so much less. We averaged, I would say, about 71 transactions last year. Some of them were double-sided in, in an accounting. The number of transactions could get to up to 120 if they're double-sided and, and rentals, which don't count as much, as a, even though they are a full transaction. But I'd say for accounting purposes, about 71 and with an average sales price of $1.2 So we did $85 million. And, you know, I've got to say, I'm going to, I'm going to be bragging right now, and forgive me, but I'm really, really proud of this. For uh, seven or eight years in a row, we've had our best year every single year. So 2006 was my best year, 2007, 2008, 2009, 10, 11, 12 have all each been my best year. And this year is, is turning out to be even greater than, than last year. We've already done $30 million in the first three months of this year. That's impressive, especially since we just went through the Great Recession here. Yeah. So what do you attribute that to? How did you continue to grow while everyone else was shrinking? You know, it's fascinating, and it's all mindset. And, and it's all mindset. It's 100% mindset. So first of all, I have a belief that there's always opportunity in any negative event if you care to search for it. And that's a strong belief. And then the second one is I want to control my reality. I don't want others to control my reality. And what I mean by that is when times are not well, if you listen to the media, if you listen to the news, you're just going to hear negative, negative stories that are going to affect your version of reality. What we do on my team, first of all, I don't watch TV. I refuse to watch TV because of that. And um, I, you know, um, I don't read newspapers. I used to be a New York Times junkie. I don't read the Times anymore. And if I want to get my news, you know, I can go online. But the minute they start to induce fear in you, they're trying to trap you into their version of reality so that you'll come back and buy their service again, whatever their service is, the Times, the, you know, CBS, MSN, you name it, Fox. And, um, you know, I just I don't want that negativity around me, nor do I want it on my team. And the other place we, we try to control our reality is if, if, especially back in 2008 and 2009, um, you know, I informed them that they are not allowed to stay on my team and express how tough the market is. I don't even want that thought in their mind. And if they listen to another broker bitching about the market, um, they have two options. They can – well, they have three options now that I think about it. They can walk out of the room, they can try to change the subject, or they can quit my team. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but how come I had my best year in 2008 and, and my best year in 2009 after that, the two tough years, and then again in 2010, and I am positive it's because of those two reasons of controlling my reality – my perception of reality, and looking for opportunity where others don't see it. I sound like an evangelical person, <laughs> don't I? <laughs> yeah. well, but, but you've got something there. So you're, 
what perception did you put in your mind? You put in your mind the perception that there's opportunity out there and you're going to find it. Is, is that correct? No, it's not a perception. To me, that's reality, that there's always opportunity. There's always opportunity if you look for it. Through the darkest of clouds, there's always opportunity. Um, I, I'm going to take this on a personal level, how I learned that lesson, and then I'm going to take it back to the recession and back to the really bad time in New York was at 9-11. Um, so both of my parents committed suicide. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I wouldn't want that. I mean, that's the last thing I would wish on anybody to have to go through as a child. That being said, what I learned from that was that there are things that I know about life that other people may not know because I've gone through that. And that's the opportunity that was available to me from that experience. And once I got that on the really big level, the really big picture, that there's always opportunity because I, I, as much as I would love to, my parents to still be alive today, I wouldn't turn down the opportunity to learn what I learned. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, transpose that to a business environment. Let's take the most recent downturn after Lehman Brothers fell. Um, phone stopped ringing for a couple months in New York. So what did we do? We said, okay, some of our sellers still have to sell regardless if the phones are not ringing. At what price will they sell at? We then reached out to them and said, listen, we don't know how long this, this, downturn's gonna, this downturn is going to last, but we have three options, and which ones do you want to do? We can keep the same course, and we're not, nothing's going to happen. It's going to be a waste of your time and a waste of my time. We can rent your apartment for you, and can you handle it and wait for the market to turn up? Or we can slash the price dramatically by about 10 to 12% and see who's willing to bite then. And we did that dramatic price drop then really got us through. My company, I was with a franchise uh, a Cobalt Banker franchise, and um, in the entire company in the month of October of 2008, the entire company did eight or nine deals. We did seven of those eight or nine deals. And the other thing is, there was that first-time home credit buyers buyer, and that was the one market that had a little bit of action in it. And it turns out that they all wanted to, all these buyers that we were getting that were first-time buyers, wanted to live in Brooklyn, and I didn't sell in Brooklyn, and I only sold in Manhattan. But, you know, I didn't have that much opportunity. I tried to get some of my team to go out to Brooklyn, and they wouldn't do it. I said, okay, I'll do it. So there's opportunity there. I took them out. I learned the market. It wasn't that hard to learn. I told them I hadn't sold much here. I'm being honest with you, but you are going to get my experience, and, you know, let's do this together. I know the market now in Brooklyn really well. That was, that's the opportunity that came there. So now, now, you know, I have really expensive listings in Brooklyn. But in the beginning, I was selling, you know, five, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars homes in Brooklyn, which is, is, I know that sounds to the audience that we're talking to, that sounds like high end to many of you, but for, for New York, it's, it's a starter home. And um, um, that was the opportunity. So I had to go out of my bubble. I had to see that there was opportunity there. I had to go out of my bubble and then figure out how I was going to do it and just trust that I could do it if I set my mind to doing it. Make sense? It does. You want to talk a lot about your market. One of the things I heard in your market is that you don't use an MLS. Is that correct? Yes. And we have what I call a faux MLS. Um, okay. We don't have an MLS, and but everybody shares – our real estate board here is called the Real Estate Board of New York. 
and um, everybody shares their listings electronically with each other, but there's no one central MLS. And you have to agree when you get a listing, according to the terms, to share it with the other members of Rebney. Um, consequently, each firm will have a slightly different database, and um, uh, smaller firms who really can't afford to have their own database will use an outside vendor that will be uh, the database for many smaller firms. Wow. It's just curiosity. Why do you think that's true? Why, why haven't you created a centralized database? Um, I know why it happened. Um, and now I'm actually seeing, I used to be against it, and now I'm actually seeing some benefits to it. They did it, well, first of all, our, our, there are several things going on. Our board is not a member of NAR, and they refuse to join NAR. And I'm seeing some benefits to that now, too, except that you can't be on Realtor.com. In fact, I had to join our office in the Hamptons so I can get my listings on Realtor.com, and that gives me a competitive edge because most people are not on it in New York City. But going back to the MLS situation, if we don't have an MLS, it becomes a bit of a barrier of entry to new companies so that the more powerful companies really can help keep their domination of the market. And whether or not that's in the client's best interest, the public's best interest, that's really debatable. But I'm seeing some benefits now from having it where I see people really disgruntled at times with with both Realtor.com and NAR, and we don't, we don't have those issues. Huh. That's interesting. And yet, you are posting listings on Realtor.com to try to get more exposure, correct? Correct. I, but I'm, I'm one of a, like a handful of brokers in New York that do that. Sure. Well, that's interesting. So now I'm really curious, and I'm kind of going on a tangent, but is there then a monopoly of large companies? Uh, maybe an oligopoly? Let's just say that the two largest companies control 50% of all the business. So, Patrick, you don't have an MLS, but you do share the information electronically. You mentioned earlier that you double-end a lot of your transactions. What percentage of your transactions are you double-ending? Um, on a regular co-op or a condo, it's about 20%. But on townhouses, which is one of my niches, it can often be as high as 50%. Wow. Because the way you search for a townhouse is slightly different from the way you search for a co-op or a condo. And, and one of the reasons is there's so few townhouses, and there's so few really good townhouse brokers. Like in all of Manhattan, I think there's a total of uh, 3,600 townhouses south of 96th Street in Manhattan, and you know there are thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of co-ops and condos. The, the townhouses are less than one percent of the total uh, real estate available to homeowners in in, in Manhattan. And yet you've selected that as a niche. What percentage of your sales last year were townhomes? Didn't run those numbers. I think we did between. I think we did about seven deals last year that were townhouses. So one that would be ten percent. Ten percent. And um, but the average, you know, a, a townhouse in Manhattan starts at about two point seven million. So it's a pretty pricey product. So the average commission on townhouse is much higher than the, on my average co-op or condo. Now, the average sales price in Brooklyn for a townhouse, I mean, if you go to you know, a place like Bed-Stuy, the average price is starting at 500000 So you, you can get more of a house in Brooklyn than you could in Manhattan. And we sell in, we sell in Brooklyn and Manhattan these days, obviously, from the previous conversation. Why did you decide to go into the niche of townhomes? Did it just happen, or did you make a decided effort to go there? <laughs> I wish I had 
made a decided effort to do it. It was more about passion and love. I love, I love townhouses. I love the architecture. I love the concept. I love the history. I like their quirkiness when they're old. And most of our townhouses in New York are old. You know, I like the sagging floors and the wood beams and the, our little backyards that we call gardens that you would call, you know, nothing. Um, but it, it just appeals um, to my sense of domicile. And, you know, if you're going to do something, do something that gets you excited and you're passionate about. Very good. Let's do this. Let's step back for a minute and describe your market. Let's first start with New York City. I, I know most people know where New York City is, but very few have been there. Could you describe kind of geographically the landscape of, of what we're looking at as far as where you're working? Well, first of all, let me say, if you haven't been to New York, get off your butt and come visit here. It's one of the most exciting places in the world. You'll have a great time, and uh, maybe it's not the place for you to live, but you've got to come here. I mean, culturally, it is the center of the world, you know, so get your butts here. New York is in the most southeast portion of New York State, right between um, New Jersey and Connecticut. For the most part, most of the city are islands. So Manhattan is an island to itself, 12 miles long, and a, what, a mile and a half wide? Two miles wide? I think a mile and a half wide. Uh, Brooklyn is part of Long Island. Brooklyn and Queens are part of Long Island. Staten Island is its own island, and Bronx is the only portion of New York which, is, which it would be on the peninsula coming down from Westchester County, but that's not an island. And Everybody's seen photographs. You've seen movies, a million movies of New York. So you know what the skyline looks like. You know it's crowded. You know there's a lot of people here. And um, it's either a place for you or it's not. And um, I love it here. And so are you working in what we've seen on the movies, the big giant skyscrapers? Is that the environment that you're working in? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes not so glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> I sold I sold last was it last year? I sold a little co op up by Columbia University, which is which is up there, which is like around hundred and seventeenth Street off of Broadway on the up way uh, past the upper west side. And um for two hundred and ten thousand, which is really, really low number for our market, it's about as low as you can get. And people said, what'd you get for that? Well, you got a studio apartment that faced a brick wall on a low floor in a non-high-demand area. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so it's not always glamorous, no. No, and I'm not always dealing with celebrities. You know, for the most part, I'm not. For the most part, I'm dealing with, you know, you know, regular New Yorkers or people who are, have become New Yorkers. You know, you said your average price is $1.2 I'm sure a lot of people are curious about that. You said they're not celebrities. Just generically, what kind of people are you working with? What kind of professions? What kind of people make enough money to buy a 1.2? For the most part, one of the two, if it's a couple, one of the two will be in the financial sector. And the other person is in whatever. You know, there's so many. We're, we're not a one-industry town like so many towns are. There are so many, so many industries here. And I do a lot of properties downtown, so I'll do a lot with creative types, too. So people in the art world, um, people that are in publishing, you know, you, know, you name it, it's here. And um, I, I, I can't really generalize. You know, I can't say everybody's coming from Boeing. That's not the case. So let's talk again a little bit more about your market. Describe your market. 
what is the average price in the overall market? You're 1.2. Is that high, low, mid-range? You know, what's... That's about average. That's average. That's average. Okay, so that's mid-range. Yeah. Huh. Well, just for curiosity, what do you think the high and the low is? You said the low might be around 200000 What's the high? I'd say the low in Manhattan would be about 175, 150 if you went up to Harlem or Inwood. The high, you know, we have properties on the market now for 120 million. So I haven't sold any 120 million. I haven't sold any 50 million. But, you know, um, one of these days I will. I'm working at it. Well, you, you opened up my next question. What's the highest uh, priced home you've sold? The highest priced, the highest sales price was 8.5 million. Wow. So there are brokers here in New York that, you know, are, are especially society brokers who their average sales price is substantially higher than mine. But I do more deals than, than just about anybody in New York. So uh, I'll be one of the top brokers in New York and in the nations simply because I do so many transactions compared to the average broker in New York City. And we're going to come back to the reason why. Let's continue to describe your average market. You said that it went down, it's come back up. What's your average days on the market now? If it's price, I don't know. If, this is things because we don't have an MLS, so we don't have these statistics. This is the thing. If it's priced right, the vast majority, I would say 85% of homes will sell within 45 days of coming on the market. If it's overpriced, then that's a different category. Do you have a niche or a specialization? You mentioned the townhomes. Do you have any other niche in your market? Yeah, um, the biggest lofts, lofts downtown, townhouses is my biggest niche. And then we go after, you know, big productions, we go after expired listings. I'm probably the biggest expired broker in the city. Actually, and I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Please describe the different ways you generate your leads in business. Until I developed a really productive expired campaign, my major source of new business was broker-to-broker referrals. So New York is one of those destination places where people, you know, you could live in, you know, tiddlywinks, Texas, and still end up living in New York at some point in your life. So it's one of the places where connecting with brokers throughout the country can be really helpful. So I speak... I bet you I speak 20 times a year at real estate conferences or masterminds or seminars. Sometimes there'll only be 20 people there. Sometimes there'll be, you know, a thousand people there. But the purpose is to get people to hear what I have to say. Hopefully they'll think that, you know, this guy's a good guy and that he can really help my clients and he works with all price ranges and um, help them be their resource when they're ever thinking about New York. Or even to the point of, you know, maybe they need somebody in the in the metropolitan area, not for me, in an area that we don't handle, but they can call me up and I'll tell them, listen, this is a really great broker here. This is who you need to do. So I want to be their source for when somebody's moving to the tri-state area in New York to call me, even if it's just to give them advice about who to work with. So you've done speaking to build that broker-to-broker referral network. Have you created a database? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I have, uh, I have about 1,400 brokers in my real estate database. Wow. And do you have a campaign to stay in touch with them? Yes and no. I like sending out value. I'm, I'm a big proponent of if I'm going to send something out, make it sure it's a value to the person receiving it, whether that's your circle of influence or that's other brokers or whomever I'm speaking to. So, 
you know, just sending out mailings to stay in touch, I think, is a waste of everybody's time, and there's no value there. But if I'm sending real value, then great. What we do is we do a calendar of events on my team that gives you a fun thing to do, everything in a fun thing every day for a month to do in New York City. Um, my group manager does it himself, and then we we send it out to um, all of the brokers, you know, that's in my database. And if for some reason they don't want to receive the calendar, they can unsubscribe from that, so it's no big deal. And then there's an unsubscribe button at the bottom. But for the most part, people love it. Even people that don't even haven't been to New York in three years, they just like seeing what's going on in case they do come to visit. And then we'll also find that they'll give it to their friends. You know, oh, their friends going to New York. Oh, you have to look at Patrick's calendar, see if, if there's anything fun to do while you're there. We've had we've gotten new clients from it alone, which is pretty cool. Um, and to me, that's real value. So that's how we one way we stay in touch. That calendar goes out to the 1,400 brokers in your database. Are part of those brokers in New York, or are they all outside of New York? They're not in Manhattan or Brooklyn, that's for sure, no. The closest broker that I would send that to would be like Judy Markowitz in Queens or the brokers over in, in uh, Hoboken in Jersey City, which is right across the river. But no, I wouldn't send that out to my, to my competitors, no. Only people who would refer business into you? Correct. Correct. So that could be brokers, and we also send it to our circle of influence uh, uh, every month, past clients, those sort of things, and people that we have relationships with, we send it to them, too. I assume over 29 years, you've tried all kinds of marketing. <laughs> <laughs> could, you, could you describe your worst marketing uh, campaign or method? What, what did not work? What should somebody avoid? God, there's so many. <laughs> Gosh, my worst. Okay. I, I'm not going to come up with a specific example, but I'm going to tell you in general. I used to be, earlier on in my career, I used, you know, I love technology, and I used to be an early adopter of things. And I would try anything. Oh, that sounds good. Let me try it. And I'm less willing to, to be an early adopter anymore. I'm more likely to want to see um, if somebody else has found success with it, then I'll check it out. And I found that that is working best for me. Sometimes I think I get a great idea and I'll hop on it and it doesn't pay out. And I would say the biggest mistake that I think you can make is if you're going to farm, if you're not farming it consistently, then don't farm at all. You know, if you're going to send a data, you know, a certain farm or a building, in my case, something once a year, it has no value. You really need to, you know, you need to be in touch with them once a month. And I've decided I don't want my money spent that way, so I don't do that at all anymore. When you say you want somebody else to go first, does that mean in your market, or does that mean... No, that would be, na that would, that'd be nationally. If I looked for leaders in my market, I'd be waiting for a long time. No, um, I find most inspiration coming from the rest of the United States. It's one of the benefits of going to all these conferences. You get to learn all these great things that people are trying, and what works and what doesn't work. And uh, not only do you have the networking possibilities, but you have this great learning experience where you can grow and become more. You know, I just went to a, a Hear It Direct conference that Sue Adler and Rob Hahn put on, which was about uh, consumer-based, um, you know, what do the, the consumers think, the customers. And I went in there with the attitude of, you know, I'd love to learn, but I'm not expecting anything from this. I was shocked at what I heard. And I'm really rethinking the way I do some things now. That one of the biggest things with buyers, especially with Gen Y, is that really connecting to the buyer and them having like you 
having a rapport with them trumps expertise. They would rather work with somebody they really like and that will help them through the transaction over somebody who really knows their stuff. And that was eye-opening to me. That was really eye-opening to me. And um, most of Gen Y, for that matter, is finding the property on their own. They don't want the real estate broker to find the property. They want them to help them with the transaction. So your relationship with the client is no longer about being the holder of information like we were 15 years ago and then providing that because everybody can find information just about on anything these days um, because of the Internet. Our job becomes making the transaction and the process as smooth as possible for the customer, and that's where the shift needs to come. And so I'm less interested now in providing, you know, getting my listings out internet-wise because most of these most of these kids are looking at things through they're they're going through Zillow, Trulia, Redfin, and uh, Realtor.com. That's where the vast majority. New York City, I would also add Street Easy, New York Times, but you know each local area will have its own aggregator, or may have its own aggregator, and you know. That's how they're doing their searches, and they want to do the filters, not through us. So I, I'm, I'm focusing more on the relationship with the client these days. So for, let me give you a concrete example. So if I go in on a listing pitch, the listing pitch should not be about how fabulous I am, nor about how many deals I've done and how, how great I am. The listing pitch should be about just listening to them and what they want. And how can I make that best happen for them? And that's a real shift, and it's a good shift. I made that shift listing-wise about, I'd say, 10 years ago, but now I know the reason behind why it's effective. So do you use a formal preset presentation, or do you just walk in with a set of questions? How's your listing going now? I do put together a listing package. I do a one-stop. I don't do a two-stop listing pitch. I do a one-stop that gives me topics to discuss. But what I've learned now is just sit down and talk to them, try to figure out what's important to them, take a lot of notes, ask them a lot of questions, and don't just take a surface answer, go deep. Then tailor my listing pitch to whatever was important to them. And how can I make that happen for them? It really becomes all about them then. And they'll know, you know, Jen Y, I, on that panel the other day on Jen Y, you know, we talk about how professional we are. Well, you know, they had a really good point. Well, we expect you to be professional. That's what you're getting paid for. Shouldn't you be a professional? That's like baseline. If you're not, then, you know, you know what are you even doing? So it's interesting. We keep on saying, oh, how professional we are, when that's just a given to the public. And the question becomes, how can you really meet their needs? And the only way you can ever figure out what somebody needs is by asking lots and lots of questions. When you switched to this focus in your listing presentation of the needs of the client, did your presentation did take longer than it used to, or did it take less time? Hmm. Honestly, it takes about the same amount of time for me. It takes about the same amount of time. My average listing pitch is about 45 minutes. Some will be done in 30, and some will go on to an hour and a half. But that, that just, you know, that, that just, I, can't, I can't narrow that down. But what it has is the core of it has changed. And I'm using my intuition more and a package presentation much, much, much less. 
When you've made that switch, are you seeing that you're listing more properties, a higher percentage of your appointments? Yeah, I did that. I did that switch about 10 years ago. Joanne Kennedy, who was one of my mentors, she was one of the owners of um, our Cobalt Banker franchise. She, you know, she went on a listing pitch with me and she showed me that's how she does it. So, I, you know, I always had a pretty high listing percentage, but it went up after I learned that it's not about me, it's about them. And now I have the understanding of why it's about them and uh, that I no longer need to sell me. Selling you is, is uh, there's a time for it with a certain generation and a time not for it with another generation. So when I'm selling a luxury property in New York and the owners are 50, 40, 50, 60 years old, I'm going to have a different presentation than if they're 25. Do you send a pre-listing package to try to pre-sell yourself? Uh, no, I do not. Let's do this. Let's shift. You mentioned you're, you've got an expertise in expired listings and off-market listings. First question is, what is the difference to you between an expired listing and an off-market listing? Well, that's a really good question, given that we have no MLS. And how do you determine what is expired and what's off the market? So this is a tough one. In our database, the only database I can be 100% sure that we know that it's expired listing if, it's, if, it's our, if a Corcoran listing expires. That's the only one I know for sure. The other ones we have to guess at, and since most exclusives are six months in New York City, we look at things that are taken off the market at five and a half to six months after they were listed. And we make, a, we make our best guess at that point. And so far, that's worked. How do you know that they've been taken off the market? You said you, you share listings electronically. What does that mean? Are you sending emails back and forth to one another? Well, it's not emails, but electronic data is transmitted to each one's database. So it'll say if it, the active listing is active, does it have a signed contract? Is there a change in price or maintenance? Is there you know status? You name it. So when something goes temporarily off the market or permanently off the market, that status will be changed. So you won't call the broker and try to book an appointment. And so if I'm understanding, I'm trying to get a picture of this. It sounds like each large brokerage has its own database of listings, and they are supplementing that information with this electronic data that comes over from their peers. Actually, the vast majority of the information is, is the supplement, is what's electronically coming across. And then you have your own exclusives that, that you probably have more information on. I would say for the vast part, 98 to 99% of databases look very much alike. There may be some small discrepancies in there, but it's not one source. It's multiple sources. How often is it updated? Oh, nightly. Every night. So it's a daily update. And so you're actually seeing in your own internal database when the properties are coming off the market or they're no longer being promoted. Is that correct? Yeah, they'll send a, a, they'll send a status change of either temporarily off the market or permanently off the market. Ah, and so that's how you know that you can proceed. At, at five and a half to six months after the listing was listed. Okay. Very good. So that was going to be my question. How do you find these expireds and off-market listings? And you're looking inside your own internal database. Correct. Is there a distinction between the word expired and off-market? Sure. You know, if I, you know in, in our company where it's Corcoran, if it is expired, we have to put in expired for the rest of our company to see it. If we put in temporarily off the market or permanently off the market, that's not an expired listing, and I cannot call that. Um, huge problems would result from that. But 
we don't have that information about other companies' listings, so we have to make our best guess on whether we call it. So far, we've been guessing really, really well. I mean, again, if it's been listed for six months and all of a sudden it's taken off the market, that's pretty much an expired listing. So when you contact the expired listing, is that one of the first questions you're asking them, is if they're still listed or not? No. Let's go to another part of that. We've talked about how you find them. How are you contacting these expired listings? <laughs> this is a good story, a true story, one of, the smartest, one of the smartest things I've ever done in my career, if not the smartest. Okay, so you know there's certain personality types that you know don't like picking up the phone and feeling rejection when they call somebody who's not interested in your services? Sure. I'm one of them. I'm a big old wuss about when it comes to getting rejected, and it just, I don't have the mindset for it. I imagine I could will myself into the mindset. I don't want to do that. One of the other things I've learned in life is that if you don't want to do something or you're really not good at it, then hire somebody who does want to do it who is good at it. So... I've hired a telemarketer who's, who's been extremely successful, and let me tell you how he did it. We put an ad into Craigslist for a high-end financial services telemarketer, and what it said was, we're, we're looking for somebody along that line. Please call this number and let us know why we should hire you. And it didn't say real estate, and it didn't say the Corcoran Group, and when he called in the number, it, you had no idea it was Corcoran, and it, we gave him a company number, but with a dummy mix, you obviously saw the ad in Craigslist. Please go ahead and tell us why we should hire you. So we got, I'd say about 50 phone calls from that, of which 25 were dreadful. And some of them were hysterically funny, bad. You know, even asking why, you know, somebody said, why, why, you, why should I tell you why you should hire me? You should, you should tell me why, why I should work for you. I was going to like, well, click. We're not calling that one back. And a couple of them were really great. One was spectacular and two other ones were really good. So we already narrowed down the list to three candidates. We only had to interview three candidates. We brought them all in. We had them do disc profiles. We called their references. I had the team meet with them because one of the things that I've learned is that my team hires better than I do. Um, So I let the team interview them and of course I'm going to interview them. And the person who gave the best phone response was by far the best candidate, and we hired him. He's in his 50s. He's an, he's an actor, you know, but he's not, you know, and he needs to supplement his income because acting doesn't, you know, can't support him. So he does this, and he's, he used to do telemarketing for uh, some sort of financial product before, and he's really good at it. And he takes rejection great. He's Comes across, he's got an actor's voice, so he comes across as hand, he can handle luxury property really well, and he's persistent. And it's interesting. I thought I would want a D or an I in this position, and he, he turns out this profile, he's a C, which is just the opposite of what would have told me. He's great. He's great. And uh, he recently got an increase in his split, and um, he's, you know, we're, we're thrilled with him. He, that first year that he worked for us, he raised uh, my G from listings that he brought in. He raised my GCI by five hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is a lot of money. And he's on par to do even better this year. And the amount of money he brings to the, to, to my team. So, um, and I've also learned from having a telemarketer before him not that it's better if he's not licensed. The reason being, he's not selling real estate; he's selling me. And secondly. 
once they get their license and they see the amount of the commissions, they want to work on the listings themselves, the ones that they bring in, and that just takes them away from doing their job, which is telemarketing. So I won't fall into that trap again. And, you know, we developed scripts and dialogues as we went on. And we refine them. We meet weekly and talk about objections that he's getting. How would I respond to it? And, you know, I give him response. And it's so great because when I go in, he pre-sells me before I even go in. So if he gets me the appointment, they already think I'm the cat's meow half the time. I don't know what the cat's meow really means, why that's a good thing. But <laughs> they think that. <laughs> This was interesting. You went through this interview process. I just want to clarify one thing. You may have mentioned it, but when the applicant calls in, they're leaving a recording on a voicemail. Mm-hmm. About why we should hire them. And that's what, that's what a telemarketer's job is, is make, giving good phone. So what's the perfect, what's the perfect uh, scenario? That one. I was, that I actually thought up on my own. That was one of the few original ideas I have ever had in my life. So part of the idea came from Martin Bauma about hiring a the part about hiring a telemarketer came from Martin Bauma in, in Detroit, Michigan. But the way I hired him was was one of the only unique ideas I've ever had because we know we all steal it from everybody. We all do. Everybody does. You know, and that's why I want people another reason why let's see what works first before I steal it. Very good, Patrick. So let's do this. Let's go through your expired campaign. You have a call component. What, what exactly is happening? You f- let's go back to the beginning. You find an expired, and then what? My guy calls them. Finding phone numbers are often difficult, and we use he found a he found this he found a service called PeopleSmart.com. We pay I think about sixty dollars a month for it, but you know that's because we have heavy usage of it. And it's the best thing. I mean, we get phone numbers. We get phone numbers of their parents' summer house sometimes. And people go, how did you get this number? And, you know, our response is, well, you know, we have access. So first, getting their numbers is the hard thing with expires. And People Smart seems to have worked really well for us. Then he goes into a shtick. And part of his shtick is when we call a townhouse expired I have a 100% success rate when I'm the second or third broker. I have never not sold a townhouse when I've been the second or third broker, which I'm really proud of. On apartments, our success record is not as high. It's about 91%. But still, 91% is, is, excuse me, damn good. And part of the problem with expireds is people have lost hope, or they're losing hope because their apartment's not selling or their home's not selling. And by letting them know that I have this success record... It gives them hope when the hope when they didn't have it before, and um, it's not always about pricing. Surprisingly, you know, I'd say about pricing, it's only about pricing fifty percent of the time for me. The other time, it's about who they're t- they're not targeting the property properly or figuring out what the unique selling proposition is. They're not doing one of those two things, and that's all that needs to be shifted. What is a unique selling proposition? Every, any product that you sell has a unique selling proposition. What does it that separates it from the pack? Why should I buy this, uh, this, this property over another property? Who is going to buy this? Sometimes it's just a simple fact as that it's, it's the best deal on the market. That may be the unique selling proposition. Um, sometimes, you know, the property is so unique. In that respect, it's unique selling proposition. Sometimes it's a combination of two. Sometimes it's about location. You've got to you've got to figure out what that is. Who's going to buy the unique selling proposition and the target market 
is are highly related to each other. Give us an example of trying to determine who would buy something and then how you went out to present your property to them. Let me give you an example of an expired that we uh, were going to close on. We had a townhouse in Tribeca that was about 3,000 square feet and it was an old, old renovated house. It dated back to the late 1700s, though you would never know it inside because it had been renovated many times inside and had very little original detail inside. The problem with the townhouse in Tribeca is Tribeca is primarily a loft market where there are lofts to live. There's very few townhouses. If you're looking for townhouse, you're usually looking for the West Village or the Central Village if you want to live downtown. So consequently, instead of just targeting this as a townhouse sale, we talked about the loft living aspects because the floor plan was a really open floor plan like lofts are. We talked about the loft-like aspects um, of this townhouse. So we sold it for about, I think, $4,250,000. And by putting in the copy a lot of conversation about the open loft-like space, it attracted uh, more buyers because most buyers are looking for lofts in Tribeca, not just townhouses. Whereas the West Village buyer probably is just looking for a townhouse if that's what they want versus a loft. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So you try to look at who the buyers were in the market, what they were looking for, and you try to fit your product to the market. Yes, and and how does it fit to the and how does it fit to the market? And I I honestly think that that's one of the the big differences between a really good broker and an average broker is figuring out who you're going to sell this home to, what's its unique selling proposition, and then everything that you do has to be relate to those two concepts. All of your photographs have to relate to that. All of your copy, any advertising you do, any marketing all has to be targeted to that. So for instance, in your first line of your copy on the description that goes on the internet on each one of your products, each one of your properties, has to have all of the keywords, the unique selling proposition and the keywords to who the target market is in that first sentence because SEO search is based on terms that are going to come up in the first sentence. If it's down in the second or third, SEO is not going to find it. So you put all the keywords in the first sentence, and may sometimes makes for an awkward sentence, but that's okay, because we want we want increased traffic. We don't want it to sound the prettiest. Another example is with your photographs. You know, if we hire professional photographers to come in, and I go on every shoot with them, and I make sure that they get the shot that I want. If a photographer is going to look at the shot and say, "Okay, this is the prettiest picture," I'm going to look at the shot and say, "Who's our target market?" And what angle and what shot is going to help say this is the right home for me for that target market? It's a different shot many times. Sometimes it's the same. Many times it's a difference. It's a different way of selling. And I think that's one of the reasons we're so successful at Expired because we're very specific about who the target market is. And also we get to look at the mistakes the last uh, broker made. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. So as an example of that, when you, you went back to your townhome that you were marketed as a, more as a loft or loft features, you took a picture of this wide open space. Would that be an example? 
Yes, that would be an excellent example. And then talk about its loft-like qualities in the first sentence of the copy. You mentioned that other brokers make errors, and you capitalize on that when you go back in as the second agent. What are the common errors that you see? The biggest common is they're not clear about who they're selling to, and they haven't figured out what the unique selling proposition is. I think the average broker just and I mean, when I say that, I hope that doesn't come across as demeaning to people that are listening to this tape. What I mean to say is I don't want you to be average. I want you to be better than average. And so I want you to hear this and think of a way how you can do your job better. That's, that's, that's what I mean by that. I hope it doesn't come across as condescending because I know I can sound really condescending. My family tells me that all the time. They'll take photographs. They'll take pretty photographs. They'll write a pretty description of the property. They'll put it on, and they'll just see who comes. Let's see who buys this. That's very different from a targeted approach where you're figuring out who is going to buy this ahead of time and then making everything match that. So a couple of things, two different things happen. Number one, some homes will have many target markets. They won't be limited to just you know one or two or three demographics. Those are the rare ones. Those are the ones that sell the easiestly. Some have a very specific target market, and then you need to really gear towards that and not gear it towards everybody because that's that unique selling proposition. Being able to determine what those two are makes a huge difference in your success on being the second broker, but your success in general on any listing as a buyer. And the other thing that I really like, which ties into my spiritual beliefs, is that I'm setting my intention on who I'm going to sell this home to, and I'm more likely to attract that buyer once I've set the intention, just like any time you set an intention in any part of your life. I made an assumption here. You tell me if it's correct or not. I assume that during your listing presentation, you go through that speech. You talk about your target audience and how you're going to help them find that target audience and what that, that makes you different. That's your unique selling proposition between you and the next agent that comes in the door. Is that correct? Very good observation, Mike. Let's go back to this. On expireds, let's go back through your campaign. You find the number, you make a phone call, my telemarketer makes a phone call. Let's be honest. I'm a wimp. Remember, I'm the wimp. <laughs> Very good. So I don't know if you'll be able to answer one of the questions I have then. What is the script that's made when that first call happens? Um, if he gets a voicemail, he'll say something to the extent of, hi, this is uh, Eric with the Patrick Lilly Group. Um, we see that your apartment was, or uh, your home was recently taken off of the market. We may have some interest in this. Would you give me a call at this number? If he gets them, then he goes in through the thing, I see that your home was taken off the market. Can you tell me what's going on with that? And he'll, he'll just ask open-ended questions so as to not to have to go into a pitch. Because as soon as you go into a pitch, if you go into a pitch right away, they, you're, they're turned off. They don't want to hear that. They want, you know, you have to, again, it's the same thing about finding out what they're doing. So he'll try to do open-ended questions. And eventually, at some point, he'll go into the pitches. Well, I want you to, you know, the, you know Patrick's one of the top... 250 agents in the nation, according to Wall Street Journal, and um, that I have a 100% success rate on on um, townhouses and 91% success rate on co-ops and condos, depending on which property he's calling, and that even if it's a, uh, an expired from our own company, you know, that Patrick does so many things different from, from the rest of the company, and he has a huge success record even when we're going after our own company expired. So he has his whole shtick down, and they have objections, and he deals with them according to whatever the script is. 
Now, that brings up an interesting question. You've mentioned you're with a big company, you've been with these big companies, you're going after a lot of the expires that are internal. Does that create conflict between you and the agent who was the original lister? Yes, and um, yes, and fortunately, I have management behind me on this. So at the beginning, when they were, you know, when we first started the experience, oh my God, it was like, you should show more respect to us. You should have given me a call first. You know, all that crap. Excuse me. Honestly, you know, we got management to say, it's like, you've been given notice in the computer that your listing's going to expire for two weeks. If, if you're honestly, if the listing's going to expire, but you're going to put it back on with you, then you have to put notes into, the, into, the, into our database saying that we're taking this off the market, the, we're going to probably put it back on in a year, this is still my customer. Then in that situation, we would not call that expired ever. But if, they, if, they put expi- if, if, it, if, if the listing expires, we're going to call them the day after, and when they call me up to complain, I'll say, you know, you need to talk to your manager but I'm going to tell you what I think they're going to say. And what they're going to say is, you know, if you just updated the computer correctly, this wouldn't have happened. Sometimes they get really pissed off, but the number of them, uh, we're handling it much better than we did, and, and management across the company is supporting us 100% on it. So when management supports you, there's not much they can do. Because management's seeing that that property would be lost, and they'd rather have you pick it up than a competitor. Exactly. I mean, it's only common sense. I mean... That's only good business. So let's go back to your campaign. First, you find a phone number. There's a call made, either voicemail or in person. What else happens in your campaign to get an expired listing? Let's start with my old campaign, and let's talk about the current one, which is really successful. And I'm going to tell you how I got into this. It's so funny. You know, like I told you before, I like every opportunity to get in front of a large crowd to speak for real estate because... It increases the number of, one, I just enjoy it. Let's be honest. I enjoy it. I have a bit of an ego, and I enjoy it. And the other side is it really does send me a lot of business, and it's definitely worth my time to do that. So at one point, Jeff Fernstall, who's a big broker in Minnesota, was moderating a panel on expireds and asked me if I wanted to be on it. I think it was for CRS, I think it was. And I said, sure, I'd love to be on it. I didn't have an expired program at that time. I thought, okay, well, I better... I better start going after expireds. And um, I don't think Jeff knows this. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows this. But it got me to say, okay, let me, let me see what other people are doing. And I put together a thing where we did these really great luxury mailings. And it said, you know, it gave our success record on the cover when we're the second or third broker. You know, we have wh- whatever the number was. And um, we sent them out. And we got some really good response to that. And then People that called back, you know, I, I put a, hired a, an agent then to, to go after them and to get me an appointment and that sort of thing. So we were doing primarily mailings and some phone calls. When we took Eric on, we started doing the mailings and the phone calls together. We were learning that we were getting a much higher rate of return on the phone calls than the mailings, which were so expensive, that... Um, uh, we cut the mailings out, and uh, not entirely, but now we only send. You know, each one of these mailings cost me about a dollar fifty, a dollar for the production, and uh, fifty cents to mail it, or whatever that is. So, um, and they're really high gloss, glossy, high-end photographs. And um, we only send out the mailings now 
when uh, we haven't been able to get an appointment. So uh, Eric can't get an appointment for me to speak to them. Then we, we start sending them some uh, expired uh, campaigns that we do. How long does Eric try to make the phone call and get in touch with them before you send out the mail? Until he gets a no from them. Oh. Until so he has he to actually no. talk to them. Yeah, yeah. He has to actually talk to them and get a no. Do you send out the mail to people he can't get a hold of? Yes, if we have an address and it's not a vacant apartment or, or home. Yes. Sometimes we'll still mail it to the vacant home and hope that they, their, their stuff is being forwarded. Not, it's not always the case. But yes, if we have an address. Because quite often if they're, they're vacant, they may not live there. They may be an absentee owner. How often does Eric call the same homeowner? Until he gets them. Does he call every day or does he call every hour? How does that work? Oh, he wouldn't call the same person. Oh, he will call and leave a message. That's something that we do. We, we will call and leave messages, and you'd be surprised how many callbacks we get. But, no, he won't call every day. No, 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 no. But, you know, once a week. So he just calls weekly until he either gets an appointment or they list with someone else? Or they or, tell him to stop or, calling? Or they say no. Yeah. <laughs> or they say stop calling. You'd be amazed how many people love his persistency. That's not a word, persistence. Um, I'm amazed by it. And I'll go on a listing presentation, and the first thing they'll say to me is that you're only here because of the persistence of your guy that called me. You should give Eric a bonus. I just did. (laughs) That's great. We're going to talk about team members later, but I, I think we've opened that door right now. How are you compensating Eric to make these calls? He gets a percentage of the overall deal, less his expenses, and less payouts that I pay to him along the way. So when he gets me a, a one-to-one appointment, I pay him 150 bucks. When he, if I land an exclusive that day, I pay him 500. If he, if we close on ex- that exclusive, and I think I pay him 850, and then quarterly we subtract any expenses he has, like mailings and uh, you know, like PeopleSmart.com, any costs that he has from the balance of what his cut would be, and then subtract that from what I've already paid him, and then he gets paid quarterly um, these bigger checks. Okay, so it sounds like you're paying a bonus structure. He's getting bonuses for, produ- for activities. So he sets an appointment, he gets a bonus. You list it, he gets a bonus. You yeah, close you need, it, he gets a bonus. You, you really need to reward them immediately. That, you know, waiting down the road is not as effective as war- rewarding the, that type of person immediately. But he's getting bigger rewards as you move through the process and you yeah. go towards the closing. And then you said you take out the expenses to run his side of the operation. So it's kind of like he's a little independent company within your yep. company uh, yep. because he has his own expenses as well. Is he an independent contractor or an employee? He is an independent contractor. I do not set the time for him to be working. He can work anytime he wants. And he doesn't even have to work at the office, though he chooses to work. It's not easier for him to work at the office. He can work from home. He can do it any time he wants. I, have, I give him no instruction about that whatsoever. So it's completely results-oriented. Yep. And you mentioned you pay different time frames. 
How often is he paid? For instance, is he getting a check every two weeks, every once a month? You well, our pay, period, our pay period is every two weeks. Oh, I left out also the one chunk of his remuneration. He has a very low base salary that I also pay him to, you know, just in case he has a couple of weeks where things are low and he needs some cash. You know, so he has a base salary, too. I left that out. I'm sorry. Is the base um, salary a draw against his future earnings, or is it in addition to these bonuses? It's in, it's in addition to and so he's receiving that every two weeks with everybody else? He receives that every two weeks along with whatever uh, incentives occurred during that time. Like he had, he had gotten me six appointments, so that's six times 150. So that would be another, you know, uh, whatever that is, $900. And let's say we had two signed, let's say three signed exclusives, that'd be another $1,500. So that sort of thing. Also for your, your listeners, you know, my marketplace in New York is very expensive. We have to pay people more here than you have to pay them in Iowa. And consequently, you know, the numbers I'm figuring may be too high for your marketplace. That's a good point. They would simply adjust it for their market, but the, the idea of paying them along the way as they're hitting certain milestones, uh, that's what keeps them motivated and moving yeah. and wanting to do more. Yep, agreed. Okay. With the expired campaigns, are there common objections that you and Eric are hearing from the prospects before they, before they hire you? Are there common objections coming in? Oh, sure. You know, why haven't you sold my place already? Why didn't Corcoran sell my place already? Aren't you all alike? What are you going to do different? Don't you just, you know, send out the listing to everybody else? You know, all, all of those. Things. And what do you say when somebody says, why didn't you sell my home when it was on the market before? Um, because I was not marketing your, uh, because Patrick was not marketing your apartment. Patrick sells his listings when he gets them. He'll reiterate, you know, our success record with expireds, and say, you know, there are 9,000 apartments on the market right now in New York City, and there's no way I can show all of them. I'm only going to show ones that that have my focus. And when my focus is on your listing, you'll see the number of showings increase. As far as expireds, what kind of results do you have? If you were to get a database of 100 expireds, how many of those would end up hiring you? I don't know those numbers, to be honest, because, um, you know, again, Eric gets to do the however he wants to do this. All I know is that our business has grown dramatically from this. You know, we don't take all the expireds that I can take. You know, sometimes it is a pricing issue, and on those pricing issues, I won't take them. I made a couple of mistakes. That's why my co-op and condo one went down to 91% because I, I, it was a luxury property and, and I wanted to increase my average sales price. And so I took it and I knew it was overpriced. And um, um, that was a mistake. And I won't, do, I'm gonna, I'm, I won't be doing that again. So that was, a, that was a really good lesson. And, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I could take a lot more expireds than than I do, but I want to keep my percentages up because that's a real selling point that separates me from everybody else. And two, you know, taking over price listings, we all know, is a waste of time. Why would I want to do that? And if it didn't sell before at a too high of a price, why is it going to sell now? So that's that's the first part. The second part of the equation, which is so great about expireds, my average sales price before Eric was nine hundred thousand. It's now up to hundred million two last year, and it'll be up to about a million five this year, just because we've really increased our average sales price. And that's the nice thing about expires. You can just set your if you want to 
one of the best ways to increase your average sales price is just go after expires above a certain number. So I only have him calling on properties above a million bucks. And that way, when I do that, um, our average sales price has to go up. Sure. Very good. Well, we're about to leave the expired listing section here. Is there any final advice you have for somebody who wants to go after expired listings? If you're a wimp like me, hire somebody to do it for you. Because the phone has been the most effective. Yeah. Just real briefly, you mentioned that you have a small part of your business that's rental. What does that mean? Rentals, we lease release properties for people who don't want to buy. Normally, it's really for the most part about servicing our clients or servicing those referral sources that we want to keep happy. So let's say I have a relationship, you're one of my brokers in my relationship, and your daughter or your daughter's friend is moving to New York and she doesn't have the money to buy nor is she ready to buy, you know, and she wants to look for an apartment, you know, she'll probably need a real estate broker to, to find that apartment or at least help her. Then to service, to maintain that relationship with that broker, we're happy to do that. And I have a, one uh, team member who, whose primary responsibility is rentals. And Jasmine does a great job, and she's really good at it. And sometimes we have sellers, you know, that we have relationships. We don't want to lose a relationship, and we want to service them and keep them as our clients so that sometimes they need to rent out their condo or their townhouse or their co-op, and, you know, we'll, we'll do that for them. Even though we make a lot less money on that, it's just about maintaining the relationship and doing what's good for that client so that we have them down the road. Okay, so you're representing both tenants and landlords. When you represent a landlord, are you doing the property management or do you hand that off to some other part of your business? We will do, if it's just a one-unit situation, we will do a very limited property management for them. But, you know, right now I think we're only handling three properties that way. That's not part of business I want to be in. If it's a larger situation, we hand it off to somebody. What I'd like to talk about now is your past clients, your circle of influence, your sphere of influence. If I understand correctly, that was uh, somewhere around half your business last year. Do you have a a database of past clients and a circle of influence? How big is that database? I think it's 1,600, but I'm not 100% sure about that. It's around 1,600. Of the 1,600, what would you estimate are the number of past clients? 800. So it's about half. Okay. And so half of it is your circle of influence. Yes. I know how the past clients get in the list. How do you describe or define your circle of influence? How do they get on the list? Anybody who knows my name that would pick up a phone call if I called them and know who I was, that's, that's your in my circle of influence. Do you actively try to add to that database as time's moving on? I try to. Could I do a better job? Yes. Yeah. Do you ever remove people from that database? And if oh, so, you why? I I do. <laughs> <laughs> what happens to cause you to remove them? Well, a really good reason is they died. That's, a, that's, a, that's, the, that's the best reason. I mean, it's horrible that they died. Don't say me wrong. But, I mean, taking them off, they died makes sense. Um, or I just don't want to work with them. You know, this is one of the things I've learned in my career that we're on a tangent right now. You know, I used to want every single piece of business that came. I was a pig, pig, pig. I still am a bit of a pig about that. I wanted every piece of business I could get. And um, I wanted to make everybody happy, and I wanted everybody to love me. Um, I have learned 
that sometimes your production goes up when you let people go, whether that's somebody on your team or somebody that you're working with, that they're causing so much strife and headache and negativity that's better just to let that income go so that there's room for more income to come in. And um, I tell you, the first time, and it doesn't happen that often, the first time I told a client I was firing them, I didn't put it that way. I put it like, listen, you're clearly unhappy with our representation. The last thing I want you to be is unhappy. So as of tomorrow, we'll be releasing you from your exclusive agreement with us, which is firing them. Nicer way of putting it. And um, <laughs> I've done that now, I'd say maybe about 10 times in my career. And nine of the times... They said, oh, no, 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 we don't want you to fire, no, we want to stay with you, you know, our communication skills are bad or whatever the reason is, you know, they were being, they were being real jerks, and some people are, and, um, you know, it would turn them around, I got to say, and then one time somebody said, great, I'd love out of this, and I said, great, I would too, so, you know, but the other nine, after saying that I'm going to fire you, don't talk to me and my team this way. Stop, stop, let us do our job and stop telling us what to do works. How do you track your database? Do you have a software program? <laughs> we, uh, this is fascinating. I've tried them all and I don't like any of them because they don't fit into our marketplace in New York because we don't have a, um, you know, we don't have an MLS, we don't have an IDX, we don't, you know, we don't have anything. What I use now, I tried using, you know, and they're all tied into those services. So, like using Top Producer or something like that, Tiger Leads isn't as effective because we can't tie it into the MLS, and a lot of the functions of that are worthless to us. Consequently, um, the tracking systems that we use and love are Google Docs, especially their version of Excel Sheet and Outlook. Pretty simple stuff. The nice thing about Google Docs is that you can share them with anybody on your team, and they can see it anywhere from any computer. It's a limited sharing, and uh, it's on. they put it on what they call their drive, Google Drive. It's great. We love it. We, we've, got, we've got just about anything that we track, we have it, or anything that we need to stay on top. Anything that we track, we have on Google Drive in their Excel version, and then we use Outlook for our you know, database components. I wish I could combine the two somehow, but for us, this is what's working best. So that Google Drive is like your network in the cloud. Yep. Everybody yep. can access it. And it's free. I actually like it more than the Microsoft version of Excel, though um, my, uh, my group manager disagrees with me on that, but, you know. What action do you take with your database? How do you stay in touch with them? Are you, are you making calls or having Eric make calls, mail, email? What are you doing to stay in front of your past clients and your circle of influence? Well, we do that calendar of events that I talked to you about earlier. We do that once a month. We send out quarterly Corcoran's market report, and then once a year I'll make a phone call. When you make that phone call, are you trying to call on an anniversary of their purchase, uh, any kind of specific day, or is it just on your schedule? How does that work? Three months after we close, we put into Outlook after the closing date that I personally call them to check in. 
one year after they close, I send them an anniversary card, and then every year after that, I call to check in. But it's, that that's not related. The following years are not related to the anniversary. The following years are related to uh, just what what how it works for me. When you make that call, what are you talking about? How are they doing? Are they still happy? What the market's like? Anything they want to talk about? Sometimes I get a voicemail and say, hey, it's, it's Patrick calling. Just want to check in and uh, see how your guy's doing. No need to call back. I just want to say that I was thinking about you. And if you want to call, here's my cell. You know, a lot of times they don't call back, which is fine by me. <laughs> are the calendar of events and quarterly market report, are those sent out by mail or are they sent out by email? Email, email, email. email. Sent out electronically? No. Yeah. And then you mentioned an annual postcard you send out? Oh no, that was a one-year closing. Oh, just the one-year anniversary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the only that's the only uh, card, I'll, and I'll write a handwritten note then. And that is generating a, a lot of response for you. That just those actions, so that's re- creating all these referrals and repeats. I don't know if those actions are creating them. All I can say is that's what we're doing, and those are the responses we're getting. And that's the result. Are, are you doing anything else? Do you do some kind of? Uh, nope client appreciation event or anything like that? I did that one year, and it's, it's really tough in New York. You know, honestly, um, it's really tough. And um, I won't do that again. Pieces that you are sending out, are you asking for referrals? The calendar of events, the quarterly market report? Calendar of events, no. Quarterly market report, no. No, in fact, I, don't, I, rarely, ask, I rarely ask for that. Are you seeing that most of your referrals are coming in from a small select group of people? Oh, yeah, always. Are those people that you're, you're running into on a frequent basis? Are you bumping into no, those people at events? No, I think, I think it's a personality type. I think there, there's the type of personality that's a connector and loves connecting people to other people. And, you know, when you get one of them to be your past clients, you know, savor them because they're going to send you so much business. And not all clients think that way. Sometimes, you know, you'll have a conversation. Somebody says, oh, I'm thinking about moving, and your client will say, oh, you've got to use Patrick. He's so fabulous. They don't even, the, the people won't even say, do you have a referral? They'll just say, oh, Patrick's so fabulous. You've got to use him. And other people's brains don't work that well. And they'll say, oh, that's nice. Where, you know, where are you going to move to? You know, that sort of thing. So I'm not going to try to change their behavior. When you identify a connector, do you do anything special for those folks? Yeah, every once in a while, you know, I'll just send them like a bottle of champagne or some flowers just to say thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate the way you, you, you know, refer me out and, you're, you know, you're really a valued client or friend or whatever. Let's do this. Let's switch and talk about your team. You use some unique titles. I'm interested to find out what titles you have on your team and what those positions are doing, what tasks are assigned to each of those positions. Okay, I'm going to say something really controversial now in the real estate world, and I believe my position very strongly. And let me just preface it. It may be selling luxury versus not selling luxury. It may have something to do with this. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm trying to understand other people's point of view. But I think my proposition works from all sides. I believe that whatever you ask to be of your team, I, you want to ask to get the you want to get the finest people you possibly can on your team. So one of the things that I'll do is each year I'll look at who's the weakest link, and they're usually gone. You know, our team is only as good as the weakest member of the team, and 
if my job is to provide the best service to my clients as possible, then if I can have a stronger team to provide that, that's in their best interest. It's also in my best interest, and it's in the team's best interest. It's sort of Jack Welch's theory, you, you know, you, you fire the bottom 15%. And I know that sounds harsh, but there's graceful ways of handling it. So, for instance, somebody just left my team who's been with me for a long, long, long time, and I would have never fired him. And I was, at the same time, I wanted him to leave. But, you know, I just, I, I, I couldn't do it. It would have been wrong. So, you know, I reached out to God and I said, listen, it's time this person moves on. Please help me. Please help this person find a direction that he needs to take his career in. Please, please, please help him find that so that he can move on and my team can move on. And I've done that twice now in the past three years, and it's worked both times. I'm not saying that my prayer worked. All I'm saying is that I couldn't fire either two people, and both I got the, they found an ideal job for themselves that was really great for them so that they could move on to a better place. And I can feel good about my relationship with them, and I was still able to get what I wanted for my team and for my clients. Does that make sense? It does. So I thought that was great. So, and then, like, recently I just fired somebody that he just wasn't made for real estate. He just wasn't made for real estate. And, you know, instead of just, you know, like, I told him, we gave him the bad news, and then I said, listen, I really like you. I really want to make this easier for you. Why don't you stay on for another month? We'll give you special projects to work on, and you can leave any time you want to go on a job interview and we'll give you a good report about what I think your positive traits are. And that way, he felt cared for, and it gave him a transition period to move on. And honestly, I think that was a graceful way of handling that, and I'm proud of that. And there's no ill feelings, or at least none that have been expressed. So that's number one. Number two, we go, let's go back to the theory that I want my team to be the best team as possible. I believe when you hire buyer's agents, you're limiting the quality of the person that you get to hire. The person that aspires to be a buyer's agent isn't aspiring to do big and wonderful and great things. They're aspiring to do limited things, and that's not who I want on my team. I want people who want more, and I think you're doing a harm to your team and to your people by hiring people that have limited aspirations. I said this once at a conference, it was a Star Power conference, and people laughed at me. I mean, laughed at me. Maybe it's the way I said it. I can be a little firm sometimes, but I don't know. I know my team is one of the best teams out there. I know we're doing a great job, and we can show it by our production every year. So at least this is working for me. Maybe it's not for everybody, but it's working for me. So I hire agents who can both list and buy, work with buyers and sellers. I have three-point people that are on commission, one salary. When I hire an agent, we determine what their bottom line is for uh, what price they want to handle with buyers, if the lead's generated by me versus the lead generated by them. We uh, talk about what sales price works for them when we take out my cut. 
this is leads generated by me, I'm going to take more than they generate the lead. And then they get to work with both buyers and sellers. And you know, while I go on the listing pitch and I usually bring one of them along, they become the point person for our team to, to, to interact with the brokerage community and with the seller and doing all the appointments because we don't have lock boxes in New York. And that system has worked really well. So if they generate a lead, they get a higher cut. If I generate a lead, I get a higher cut. We make it work out. Now, on our lower-end listings, our cuts don't work out that they could make enough money that made it worthwhile for them. So I have one point person that's on salary to cover my lower-end price point so that we can still give them the same service that we give on our higher-priced properties. So I call them point people, but they're really just you know out full-on, out-and-out agents. I think you get people that aspire for more when they have the ability to do both sides, and that's what I want. Does that, does, how does that come across to you? Does that come across? <laughs> sure. I understand what you're saying. So these point people is what other people would call a buyer agent or a listing agent. You've just combined it. They're doing both sides, listings mm-hmm. and buyers. So the point that was throwing me was that they go in with you on the listing appointment. Are these point people, are they, are they listing and working with buyers on their own, or are they coming in in more of a supportive role where you're going out and acquiring the business and then they take over? Different on which side it is. On the buy side, generally I don't work with buyers at all. So, you know, I'm the rainmaker and I generate the vast majority of leads for our company, many more leads than they generate, many, many more. And then fish out the leads to the appropriate person. So on the buy side, it's almost not every once in a while I'll work with a buyer, just stay in touch with a certain market segment or because I need to really handle that referring source with kid gloves because I want want to keep their business because they're so important to me, then I'll work with them myself. Um, But for the most part, buyers get, get handed out right away. On the listing side, I'm a little bit more active. I consider myself a listing agent, um, that that's the main source of our business. So um, I'll be more active in the actual sale of the property. So I'll handle all negotiations. I'll do the listing pitch. I'll do all the marketing myself. I will handle problems when they arise. But the day-to-day things like showings and feedback and putting together um, putting together board packages when we have to do that in New York City, um, that, that's done by the point person. And you mentioned you don't use lockboxes. And so these point people have to be available to show the listing. They have Correct. to be there to meet Correct. and greet the buyer agent. Correct. Okay. So that eats up a lot of their time. That's part of New York City real estate. Okay. And other portions of the world have to do that too, especially in luxury properties. Like, you know, Cape Cod, they do that. In L.A., on the high-end properties, they do that. Same thing in San Francisco. Okay, so you've got your point people. We've talked a, a little bit about them. You've got four of them. Who else is on the team? I have four point people, three on commission that are my three best agents, and then one is salaried, um, who's very good too, I must admit. I have, um, I have a rental specialist, Jasmine. I have my part-time telemarketer, Eric. Uh, I have my group manager, Andres, who's just amazing. And I have, um, we call her a lead coordinator, but she, she basically does anything that Andres needs her to do, but she does, co- she does all our tracking and, of Internet sources and buyer leads and seller leads for us and then anything else that Andres wants her to do. And then myself, I make nine. What's the difference between what you do as the group leader and the group manager? Oh, the group manager is an administrative position, you know, just taking care of everything. My job is about generating leads, 
in handling problems and, and managing the group in terms of agents, production, happiness level. You know, um, I, I, I'm a licensed uh, coach also. So um, we have one-on-one sessions once a month where I'll personally coach them. And, in, and many of them I'm coaching on a, not business aspects, on life aspects, simply because, you know, that's where their hurdle is right then. That's preventing them from performing better. While you've mentioned your staff, I haven't heard a position of listing coordinator or a under contract coordinator. Once you put a property under contract, what happens to it? The point person is would be that coordinator. The, the, the point person does their own coordination. Ah, okay. So that point person is taking it from the time that it's either listed or a buyer comes in all the way through the closing. Yep. And so they have to have their own internal systems, or have you provided them with systems to manage that transaction? Uh, We've provided them with Google checklists, Google, (laughs) Excel, hard drive checklists. Very good. And then we review them every week. So we have weekly team meetings, and during that meetings, we'll do a lot of things. You know, we'll start off the meeting with what's good in their life outside of real estate, what's happened to them that's been good. Again, we want to set a positive tone. And then the second thing we do is – have you seen anybody in our group do a really great job this week? Tell us about it and let's share it. Then we go into a learning situation where, you know, somebody they'll bring up an issue they want to talk about or I'll say, I've seen this happen this week. Let's talk about this so we can learn and grow from it. And then um, we'll talk about any other current topics. Andres needs to go over any new things we're trying to incorporate state of the market, and then we finally go into each one of our listings and each one of our deals. And we go through every listing and every deal that we currently have and see where we are and whether or not I need to, I or the team could have some input to make the situation better. So we weekly review in the meeting every listing and every deal. You've got three point people on commission. Uh, How is that structured? Um, If I generate the lead, then they receive a certain cut of my commission. If they generate the lead, then they receive a substantially higher cut. And the rest of the folks on the staff, are they paid salaries, bonuses? How's that work? My rental and the three commission and the telemarketer are all commission. My two administrative positions and the one point person are salaried. Uh, and she is salaried with bonus. The others just get a, uh, the other two get a Christmas bonus, year-end bonus. Patrick, there there are a lot of people listening to what we've talked about. They're trying to get a picture of your operation. One of the questions they're going to ask themselves is, are you profitable? Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. That's good. People are always trying to get a handle on different business structures, what's working, what's not. One of the things they use to quantify that is a net profit margin. Would you be willing to disclose to us your net profit margin as a percentage of your revenues? Um, 45%. One of the things I want to say about that is I bet you I could get that net profit higher. But one of my beliefs is I want the best team I can possibly have And I'm going to reward them with slightly higher numbers than other people might do because I want to keep them. Transition is so expensive. I'd rather keep people and develop them than to lose them because they'd have a better opportunity somewhere else or on their own. 
you know, I make sure that what I give my team is more than what they could make on their own and that they're grateful to be here and I'm grateful to have them. So I'm willing to, to take away less net profit in order because that increases my happiness level and it increases their happiness level. And you can't put a dollar price tag on happiness. Patrick, did I hear you're doing coaching? I think you mentioned it earlier. What's that yeah. all about? All right, here's, this is probably a longer story than you need, but I'll share it. Back before I became a big broker, I was going to all these conventions, and I met Susan Pyle, who was a big broker then from New Mexico, and she was speaking on a superstar panel, and I just liked her. I just, I just liked her being. And so, you know, I thought, I would really like to meet her, and I'd like to talk to her. So 30 minutes later, there's a reception. She's standing there eating shrimp off of a dish of, by a, a counter by herself. I walked right up, grabbed some shrimp, and said, hi, introduced myself. We started talking, and I said, listen, how do I get to the next level? How do I get to your level? And she goes, well, one of the things you need to do is you need to go, go with uh, Dr. Fred Gross, who's a life coach, life and business coach. So I did, and I studied with Fred for uh, – uh, seven years. I think it was seven years. And he was great. Really opened up my eyes to other possibilities. Introduced me to my very best friends in the world. They were all other people that worked with him. Um, he's just an amazing guy and really opened up so many doors for me and helped me think differently about my life and my business. I also saw that during the later years of coaching with him, because this was in a group setting, that I was pretty good at what he was doing myself and that I had a real talent for it. And my friend Debbie Yost, who's also a big broker down in uh, Casa Grande, Arizona, she, she and I decided to go get our coaching license together because it appealed to us both. And we did. We went to a transformational coaching school out in Seattle for about a year and a half, and uh, it was like getting a master's degree. It was really, really, really deep stuff and hard stuff. But we got certified, and um, I've been coaching since then. And most of the coaching I do is either pro bono as a way of giving back Actually, that's not actually true. It's not totally pro bono. I've also found that if you give your service for free, the client doesn't respect it. There needs to be an energetic exchange of some money, even if it's a really reduced fee. So I'll do that, and I'll also do it if somebody's really, really hungry to grow their business and want to change their lives and transform their lives, and they're really hungry. And you can tell who's hungry and who's not. So the average, the average person, I just don't. I'm not interested in working with but if you're really, really hungry to be the biggest person you can possibly be, then, then I'm happy to work with you. And that's just a few people, so I don't work with many people anymore. And most of the stuff when I do do the coaching these days tends to be on personal stuff on terms like finding your purpose and your um, essence in life, you know, who you are at a soul level, and then helping you to determine what that is and then work through that so that you have a sort of guideline for, for the rest of your life. I find that very rewarding, and, you know, I don't make a lot of money from it, but it's it's more of a way of giving back and helping to change the way people think and live their lives that I find rewarding and makes me happy, and it's worth the energetic exchange, even though it's a lot less money than I make in real estate. Are you currently taking on new students? A few, not many. If they want to take the Essence and Purpose weekend, it's a three-day weekend, that's open to anybody who wants to take it, and I'm happy to do that. And even if I can't do it, I can refer other people like Debbie who can do it or other, other coaches that I know that can do it too. I'm even happy to, if you'll pay for my way out, I'll come out to you instead of you having to come out to me um, to do the weekend thing. That is open to anyone who wants to find their Essence and Purpose in life. Um, to do serious one-on-one coaching, they're going to have to jump through some hoops to make me 
first of all, they're going to have to take the Essence and Purpose conference with me. They have to do that. And then if they're really serious about being really serious about this, then I'd be happy to work with them. I'd be thrilled to work with them. But I, I just don't. You know, if, if you want to come to me and talk about how to grow your real estate business, I'm not the right guy for you. Uh, you know, I'm sure I can give you some good suggestions, but honestly, I'm going to get really bored. I'm not going to give you the attention you deserve. And there are many other coaches out there that do that much better than I do. I'm more about changing and transforming your lives into becoming the biggest person you can possibly be, if that's your desire. Patrick, what drives you? Fulfilling who I am at a soul level. I believe that you're born and you have a certain purpose in life, and figuring out what that purpose is and fulfilling it is a huge drive for me. And one of the, one of the reasons I like selling real estate and then being successful in it is it gives me access to so many more people if I hadn't been. So I can bring in my core beliefs whenever I speak, even about real estate, because I don't believe there's a difference. I believe that as I become a better human being, I become a better real estate broker, and vice versa. I, as I become a better real estate broker, I become a better human being. And I don't have one set of beliefs and actions for my personal life and another sense for my business life, same ones that can go on both sides. Sharing what is part of my message to everybody is what really drives me and gets me happy and gets me excited. You know, not only changing myself, but changing the way other people think. It's just so, so rewarding. It's so rewarding. And, and it's one of the reasons I'm so happy to do this conversation with you is because, you know, even if only one person, let's say 10 people hear this, I don't know who it goes out to, let's say 10 people hear this, but it really connects with one person and that one person can make some changes in their life. What a well-spent two hours. Patrick, why are you successful? I think it's a couple of combinations. One, I think I have some God-given talents that I'm blessed with. Two, I really enjoy being in service to others. Three, and this is less charming, is I have a big ego, and I'm very competitive, and I hate to lose. So I've got two really good reasons at the beginning that I just told you about that are wonderful reasons, and a one that's not so wonderful, but it's part of who I am, and to deny it would be denying who I am. So, you know, I work with my ego and battle it all the time, but at the same time, I need to be grateful because it pushes me to do more and more and more. And as you can tell, I'm still finding a balancing ground for that. Patrick, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting into business, what would you tell them to do first? Oh, that's easy. First of all, create a database for your circle of influence. That's the most important thing. Listen, the most effective thing you can ever do is pick up the phone and call people who know you. Nothing is more important than that than keep on adding people to your database and keep on adding people to databases. Nothing is more cost-effective than a warm call. Not a cold call, a warm call. Nothing is more effective. And it's the cheapest thing. You know, it's a lot less expensive than doing a lot of marketing. And develop some good scripts that you can call. And by the way, anybody that can fit in your initial warm circles is all of your relatives. Anybody that, you know, you went to school with. Anybody, you know, your hairdresser, your accountant. Anybody you have any sort of relationship with, put them in there. 
And then you want to make a phone call like, if you're a little bit more experienced agent, the phone call can be, hey, Joe, at some point you want to get to the point of, hey, Joe, this is really a business call, and uh, I'm, I'm asking you for help. Um, I want to grow my business by 30% this year. And I'm just wondering, do you know of anybody that's looking to buy or sell real estate, either in the area or anywhere outside where I could refer them to a really good agent? The reason people are so open to that conversation is, one, people always want to help other people. If it costs them no money and takes very little of their time, people will jump at that option because they do want to help you, provided it doesn't cost too much of a strain on them. And all they have to do is think, do they know somebody they don't? And, um, you know, it's not going to cost them a dime to do this. If you're newer to the business, say, listen, I'm new to the business. Do you know anybody thinking to, to buy or sell real estate? You know, I'm newer, but I'm hungry, and I will work my butt off harder than anybody to get them what they need. And I'm happy to bring in a more experienced agent with me when I don't know the answer. Promise to work harder than any experienced agent really has a lot of meaning, especially to Gen Y these days. And um, the other thing that I would say that I think would be good advice is to – Let's say you're going after a listing and you don't know if you can get it. Team up with a more experienced broker and share the listing 50-50 with them so you can land that, that listing. Because once you get your first listing, it's a lot easier to get your second listing. And once you get your first listing, wherever that house is listed, go after other houses in that neighborhood because now you have a competitive advantage. Now you have a listing there that only the other three other people have listings in that neighborhood. You've got a competitive advantage over the rest of your MLS system. So setting up a sphere of influence, making those calls, asking people for help. Oh, one other thing is your friends associate with you. Oh, Mikey, he's my drinking buddy. Oh, Mikey, he, you know, we play lacrosse together. Or Mikey, somebody, say, somebody will say Mikey to go, oh, yeah, he's a fun guy. You wanted them to start thinking of you, oh, Mikey, he's a real estate broker. So that means in your casual conversations all the time, you need to bring up real estate stories that will be interesting so they'll think, oh, Mikey's a real estate broker. Oh, Mikey, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you're selling, you've got to call Mikey. Meaning, you know, like I just saw this, you know, you're at a dinner party or a cocktail party. I just saw this coolest house. It had a hot tub with blue and green lights in it. You know, it'll start a conversation, and you're not selling yourself, but you are selling yourself. And think of every opportunity of anybody you meet as an opportunity to get their business. Do you think the top agent interviews like the one with Mastermind Agent right now are valuable? Oh, God, yeah. yeah. You know, some of the ones that I enjoy for me personally are the ones that are so different from my marketplace. I'd love to challenge myself and try to figure out what that individual is doing that's working in their marketplace, which is so different from mine, or the product they're working whatever, how can I tweak what they're doing to make it work in mine? And that's the way I love to listen to them. You know, like, and I also like to hear their personal stories. I, I, I like to hear their mistakes as much as, as their successes. Well, Patrick, thank you for sharing your mistakes and successes. You've built a strong team and a strong brand based on insight and integrity. Your extra effort to find the unique selling proposition of a property is matching more home buyers and sellers and resulting in faster sales. You shared your revelation that by becoming a better person, you became a better agent and 
By becoming a better agent, you become a better person. We all strive to become better at both. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 64 homes and managed 260 rental properties last year. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.